Uh, Let me begin by reading from Hebrews chapter 1. It's on the handout, if you've got that in front of you. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Holy Lord, we come to you as sinners with no right to read your word or know your secrets and no claim on your favour except that your son came to die for us and now lives as our great high priest. For his sake, uh, please give us a glimpse of your glory today, shining in the face of Christ, so that we might be changed and we might, might serve you more faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what difference does the Trinity make to us, to our day-to-day thinking about God, to our ministry? What difference would it make Uh, if Jesus were just an exalted man or a mode of God? How would our lives and worship be different? I think we all want to say that the Trinity is a non-negotiable for us. We know that it is a key marker that sets us apart from heretics, cults and Muslims. Uh, We know that it puts Jesus in a unique category. But I wonder how deep the doctrine goes into our affections. As I look at the articles that come into me at the Gospel Coalition, uh, we don't get too many on the Trinity. We're worried about uh, how the government is affecting our religious freedoms, or we're worried about how to hold on to young people, or how to keep evangelism uh, on the agenda, or about not burning out in ministry. Sometimes we worry a little bit too much about how long sermons should be. But our Our concerns are practical and straightforwardly evangelical all the time. Maybe Trinitarian theology leaves us cold. Maybe we think it encourages the wrong sort of people or the wrong sort of debates. Maybe we think it takes takes us away from the straightforward realities of the gospel and the Bible. I have some sympathy if that's our concern. But I hope that we'll see today and tomorrow that the doctrine of the Trinity is very much a biblical doctrine and very much a practical doctrine. Even more, I hope to show that it's a doctrine that should help us to think about everything differently. And I hope that we'll see that it's a doctrine that causes us to rejoice. The context of our main passage today, of course, is a letter to some Jewish Christians in the first century. We don't know very much about where they were located or much about their circumstances. Uh, But we can see that they were in danger of turning away from Jesus and going back uh, to Judaism. Perhaps it was increasing persecution, there are hints of that. Or perhaps it was the uh, 
comfort of their more tangible religion that they'd come from, a temple that you could visit, sacrifices you could buy and offer. Or maybe they'd simply lost their first love. They'd stopped meeting together and encouraging one another. But our writer, and of course we don't know much about him either, uh, wants to warn his readers that going back would be a disaster. It would be a disaster uh, because uh, in coming to know Jesus, they have come to the end of days. They've come to God's final revelation because Jesus, the one they've been believing in, is God's son. And also in coming to know Jesus, they've been given the key to history, God's secret design for, for creation because Jesus isn't just God's son, he's God's heir. So that's our two headings. Jesus is God's son and Jesus is God's heir. The first thing our writer wants, to, wants us to know is that Jesus brings a radically new kind of revelation because he is God's son, because of who he is. At many times and in various ways, God relayed information uh, to his people by means of prophets entrusted with his word. He intervened in history and he provided interpretations of those interventions. But now God has sent someone who is himself a revelation because he's a true son. Now, initially, that might not seem too remarkable to us. Of course, there are other sons of God in the Bible. In the Old Testament, for example, in the angels in Genesis 6 or Job 1 are called the sons of God. The children of Israel, the Israelites are called uh, God's firstborn son in Exodus 4. The son of David in 2 Samuel 7, of course, is uh, the son of God. And there are other hints that other rulers of God's people in Psalm 82 are described as uh, God's sons as well. These sons are creatures with a special relationship to God, some limited similarity to him. They share, for example, in his rule over the world. Being a son, in this sense, is a kind of office. Uh, yeah, we've got a diagram. Terrific. And Jesus has this kind of sonship too, as the Messiah. Um, we see... Um, in John 1.49, Nathaniel says to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Yeah, son of God is equated with being the Messiah. Or the high priest at his trial in Matthew 26.63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And we even see this sort of sonship in Hebrews 1.5 here, don't we? Uh, uh, as the writer quotes from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have, I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Again, this is a sonship that is given or earned. It means that Jesus is crowned as God's ultimate representative over every other ruler in earth and heaven. It's an office and a glory that he achieves through his actions. And we'll come back to this idea very shortly. But Hebrews 1 shows us that Jesus was already God's son in another sense before that exaltation. He was already God's son when he came into the world. He was already God's son when God made the world through him. This kind of sonship isn't just sharing in God's rule. It's literal sonship. It means he comes from God shares in God's reality and is just like his father. 
Now, again, lots of things are a bit like God, aren't they? Those created sons, for example. Uh, And in fact, it's true that everything that God makes is a little bit like him, from the smallest bacterium uh, to the largest galactic superstructure. Everything testifies to the glory of God in some sense and in some measure. But Jesus is exactly like God. Notice how verse 3 describes him as the exact imprint um, of, of God. The word character there, of course, conveys the idea of an impression left in clay or wax when you press a seal into it, an exact likeness. And Jesus is the imprint of God's nature. The word for nature here is hypostasis, a word that will later become so significant in the Trinitarian discussions uh, where it will refer to a personal and particular instance of a nature. Here it simply means what God is. Uh, Whatever God is, Jesus is again. There we go. God and his son. So whatever God is, we see it again in Jesus. Jesus isn't just a bit like God. He is what God is all over again. And that's the basis of Jesus' mission. Prophets bring words. Jesus brings himself. And he shows us God in his own person. And if he wasn't God's son... Uh, he wouldn't be, uh, uh, he'd be just another of the many and various ways that God has spoken to us. His distinction uh, rests on what he is. Uh, and it also rests on what he does. In verse 2, we learn that Jesus is co-creator, the one through whom God made the world. In verse 3, we read that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus has the same creative power uh, as God. Jesus is, uh, in in fact, in John 1, we read that Jesus is God's word. In Hebrews 1, we see that he himself has a word that sustains the universe. Jesus is exactly the same, just as powerful, uh, just as necessary, just as truly our creator. But wait, you might say, if Jesus is like God, as that diagram shows, does that mean he's another God? Is he a second God with his own power and ideas? After all, that's how it works with humans, isn't it? A a child comes forth from the body of their parents uh, and it happens in a moment of time and then they're separated. Uh, The the father and son, for example, go on and one might die and the other keep living. Uh, The strength that the son inherits comes from his father but now resides in his own body. And so if they pool their resources, they can achieve more. Uh, They're generic in one sense. But with God and his son, it's different. That link is never broken. We see it most clearly, I think, in John's gospel. Uh, Not just when John speaks of Jesus as God's word, which certainly implies a kind of living biological connection in in one sense, but just in the way Jesus speaks of the Father living in him or speaking and acting through him. The words I say to you, uh, I do not speak on my own authority, says Jesus in John 14.10, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. In Hebrews 1, uh, this sense of continuity or, or organic oneness comes through at the start of verse 3, where Jesus is described as the radiance of the glory of God. That word radiance or apogasma uh, can either mean the rays of light coming off a light source 
or a reflection of a light source. But in both cases, the connection is live and dynamic. Reflections and rays can never be separated from uh, the light that is producing them. They belong together. That's what Jesus is to God. And Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. First century Jews would have been familiar with the idea that God's presence would be communicated and mediated by a visible display of his glory. Uh, for example, shining on, uh, in the tabernacle or on Mount Sinai. You get at the end of Exodus when the, the tabernacle is set up and Moses can't go in because the glory of God is shining. Or 1 Kings 8 when they bring in the ark and again the priests can't conduct their services because the glory of God is manifest. Well, now we see Jesus as the embodiment of that glory. To see him is to see God. To look at him uh, is to find out what God is like. And once we understand that, I think, we can, we're ready to see how the doctrine of the Trinity arises out of, or is prepared for, by the Old Testament. Steve, can I get you to skip? Yes, that's the one we want. Um, so in the Old Testament, we see... God at work through agents. There are little circles down the bottom. We've already talked about them. The kings who mediate his rule, and the priests who mediate his holiness, the prophets who mediate his words. And we also see God at work through direct manifestations of his presence, uh, his glory, his word, his wisdom. Uh, now, neither of these things, of course, are the Trinity. The little circles are just creatures. They are agents who represent God, they're persons, but they're not God. And what about the, the other categories? Well, it's hard to know what's going on there. Maybe they're just theophanies, visible displays of God's presence in some sense. But I think with Jesus, we see those things come together in one. Jesus is God's agent, but he's also the visible presence of God. Uh, Let's go back one slide. If we could. Yeah, there we go. That's terrific. Thank you. So Jesus is God's glory and word and wisdom, but he's also God's agent working in the world. Now, let, now before we go on uh, to the next section, uh, let me point out that this vision of the Trinity we get here is a little bit different from uh, the way we often think about the Trinity today. If you ask a well-taught evangelical what the Trinity is, he or she might tell you that it means that God is one being uh, and three persons. Or one three, or three persons in one being, perhaps. And that, that's a true and orthodox answer insofar as it goes. But the one being and three persons formula leaves out something that the Bible foregrounds again and again, namely that the Son is one with the Father in being and perfect, perfectly alike uh, the Father in his person because he comes from the Father as his radiance or as his word or especially as his Son. Or as the Nicene Creed puts it, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And if we leave out that fromness idea, if we stick with the idea that Jesus, only, only have the idea that Jesus is one with God and like God, it's going to make it harder for us to comprehend the Trinity, or at least conceptualise the Trinity in some form. In fact, we'll probably gravitate to a model that looks more like a single human being with a multiple personality disorder. God is like one person with 
three personalities inside him. Um, we jump forward to two slides, I think. So thank you. Yeah, that's it. Um, so that's a, that's a kind of visual representation of, I think, how a lot of people think. We, we think that uh, they are one and they are alike, but how that oneness works and why they are one and alike uh, is, is not made clear by this classic description. But in, but in the Bible and in the Creed of Nicaea, the, the fourth century kind of orthodox tradition, uh, those two things are held together by the fromness, by the sonship uh, of Jesus to his father. Uh, and once we understand that, I think things become clearer. Uh, let's, let's have a look. I've tried to kind of visualise it slightly differently. Uh, trying to show there the unity, the bi- kind of biological dynamic connection between father and son, the fromness. Um, the son is always from his father and the likeness. You can draw it how, if you've got a better way of drawing it, that's fine. This is just my kind of attempt to think visually. Uh, but I think understanding that the doctrine of the Trinity is a tension between those three things, the oneness, the likeness, and the fromness, is very helpful. And in fact, it's so helpful that it will help us understand not just the, kind of the way the Bible describes Jesus' relationship to his Father, but it will help us to understand every heretical alternative. So let's have a quick look at the next slide. I won't kind of spend a lot of time on this. But if we only understand that Jesus is from God we'll end up with Arianism. He'll just be another creature. That's up the top. If we understand that Jesus is only one with God, then we'll end up with modalism. Bottom right. If we understand that he's simply like God, then we'll end up with tritheism. And you can have hybrid, hybrids of those two things. If you stress, stress for example, that, God is, that Jesus is from God and like God, you'll end up with uh, one of the kind of minor heresies that occurred in the 4th century after the Council of Nicaea called homoousianism. It's an unstable mixture, unstable theology. Uh, and on the, its counterpart on the other side, on the right-hand side, is the thing called logos theology, which is the idea, very common um, in the first couple of centuries, where Jesus is, starts out as a kind of mental faculty of God the Father and comes forth as a person temporarily. Uh, actually, it's, um, uh, it's to get rid of that idea that our current form of the creed has the line at the end and his kingdom will have no end. He's not going to be reabsorbed uh, into a kind of sub-personal uh, manifestation of God or something. The bottom category, of course, is what many of us believe today. Um, we stress that we, we have the idea that God is, that Jesus is like God and one with God, but we forget that he's from God. Uh, so what I'm trying to argue is that it's really important that we understand the fromness aspect of the Trinity. Uh, often we make it more complicated for ourselves when we talk about this by describing it as eternal generation, uh, which makes it sound like a dubious extra-biblical speculation. Uh, but all it's saying is what the Bible shows again and again, that everything begins with the person of the Father. Jesus is from him as a word, as radiant glory, as an image, and especially as a son. And because Jesus is God's son, he's God's heir. And that brings us to our second point. Why did God create the world? It's the kind of question a child asks, isn't it? It's one of those big questions that you learn not to ask as you get older. 
When I was a kid, my dad's answer was that God created the world to have someone to love, which was wrong, wasn't it? Uh, uh, the beautiful truth of the Trinity is uh, that, God, that love is God's native state. Uh, the Father has always had his Son to love, and the Son has always been loving his Father, even before the creation of the world, as Jesus says in John seventeen twenty four. So what's the right answer? Well, the Bible, ne- Bible, Bible never gives us a direct answer. Uh, but Isaiah 43, verse 7, talks about God creating and calling people for his own glory. And other passages, such as Romans 9, seem to agree with that, don't they? Uh, God saves some to make his glory known to the objects of his, his mercy. It's the, that's what's behind the Catechism's declaration that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's a good guess, I think. But in the New Testament, we also see that God has a plan within a plan, within that plan, to bring glory to his son, a plan to do his greatest works uh, in such a way that his son will be honoured alongside him. As we see in John chapter 5, verses 20 to 23, the father loves the son and shows him all he does and is going to show him even greater works and make him the giver of life and judge so that all may honour the Son, even as they honour the Father who sent him. Here in Hebrews 1, we see this plan for God's Son, God's plan for his Son, described in terms of an inheritance. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now again, the idea of uh, God the Son having an inheritance might seem strange. God, we've already seen that that Jesus is co-creator and sustainer of the universe. How can he inherit or receive anything? He's got it all already. But the key here is to understand that what we're talking about is Jesus' new relationship with the world that he develops as a man. The human, human existence of Jesus has its own story. He comes into the world as a baby and grows in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men, as Luke 2, verse 52 says. Jesus' human story involves him enduring trials and temptations and fulfilling prophecy and dying for sins and being raised to life as the king and saviour of the world. Jesus undergoes changes and achieves things. He goes to the cross for our sins and becomes the champion of the world. He vindicates all God's purposes. He neutralizes Satan by satisfying the demands of the law. He shows himself the only one worthy to rule God's creation. Or as the second half of verse 3 says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So God's son, who is eternally and unchangeably great, who is creator and sustainer of the universe, who is sovereign, also achieves a new exaltation in his human life by providing a purification for our sins through taking on our, our humanity and becoming the sacrifice and priest and by making us his brothers and sisters. 
And, of course, this is completely consistent with what we see in other parts of the New Testament, isn't it? Uh, Philippians 2, where Jesus is given the name that is above every name. Or in Revelation 5, where the hosts of heaven declare that he is worthy to open the scroll of history and, and receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. And Hebrews 1 tells us that this plan, this exaltation of uh, God's son as a human being was God's plan for the world and for his son from the very beginning. The son through whom he created the world is the, is the same son whom the world was destined to belong to. Now let me make just a quick digression here about uh, God the Father and his plans. In recent years, uh, there's been a strong reaction against uh, what's known as social Trinitarianism, that is, thinking the per of the persons of the Trinity like three people with their own ideas and desires who can kind of have relationships with each other. Uh, there's also a strong reaction against any notion that there might be anything like obedience or conformity on the part of the eternal son to the eternal father. Neither of these things can be right, the argument goes, because God the Father and God the Son have one will. And this argument is partly right, isn't it? Uh, if Jesus is the exact imprint of God the Father, then he must want the same things uh, that the Father wants. He will have the same natural desires because he's God's true son. If he, was, if he had different desires, he'd be another God with a different nature. And if he was taking direction from God, he'd be a lesser God, or maybe a creature or an archangel or something. So it's a true point. But this true point about, uh, about God having one will, and God the Father and God the Son having one will, uh, often comes with two mistakes. Firstly, it confuses will with mind. And secondly, it confuses will with counsel. What do I mean? First, will is not the same as individual consciousness. For the father and son to share one will means that they like the same things. It's like all cows enjoying the taste of grass because they have a common nature. Or it's like all humans desiring to breathe air because we have the same physiology. But that doesn't mean we've got the same mind. The fact that cows eat grass doesn't mean they're a collective consciousness. Or the fact that we all breathe air doesn't mean that we're a hive mind or something. Uh, our common nature only appears distinctly in individuals. Natures themselves don't have desires. Only personal manifestations, personal instances of a nature uh, have desires. The second mistake is to confuse will with counsel. What do I mean by that? Well, will is about the, the sort of things that God likes by virtue of his nature. Goodness, love, righteousness, justice, uh, stuff like that. And those are the things that the son likes too because he fully shares that nature in an unbroken unity from his father. But will isn't the same thing, it's the same as things that God decides. Uh, for example, God didn't decide to create the universe because it was his nature to do so. He didn't elect to save you or me because his nature gave him no other option. No, these are free actions. They're consistent with God's will. God doesn't do evil things. Uh, but they aren't the same as his will. They are what are sometimes called his counsel or his decrees. 
Now, how an unchanging and eternal God can make a decision is a great mystery, and theologians tie themselves in knots trying to work out how that might work. But the Bible isn't fussed about it. It simply tells us that the Father decides things. Uh, he's the one who chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, according to, Hebrew, uh, to Ephesians 1. He's the one who gives us as gifts to his Son in John 17. He's the one who sets the times and seasons for the return of Christ and the end of history, according to Acts 1 verse 7. And here in Hebrews 1, we see that it's the Father who has decided that the world should look to his Son as its Saviour and King, that Jesus should inherit the world. I like the way the Puritan Thomas Goodwin puts it. He says that when God the Father set up history, he surveyed infinite more frames of worlds he could have made, but picked one for the sake of Christ and the glory of his person. God's chief end was not to bring Christ into the world for us, but us for Christ. That's a striking point, that last one, isn't it? Uh, we are used to thinking that Jesus became a man for us, that it was all about us and saving us from our sins. And it's true, of course, that the cross is the main event. And it is the reason why Jesus came into the world. This is a true, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. But Hebrews 1 reminds us that there is a deeper plan underneath that rescue. We exist because God had a plan from the beginning to glorify his son. We are made as gifts to belong to the Son and then brought back to the Father by the Son, of course. Even our sins, as wretched and wicked as they are, were somehow part of God's plan. I think that puts our salvation and our ministry in a slightly different context, doesn't it? Writers on the left of the evangelical spectrum sometimes tell us that we've been too individualistic in the way that we present the gospel. We've reduced the good news to me being saved from my sins. And they say what we should be doing is talking about the bigger plan of God to uh, restore the world or fulfill the promises to Israel. And that's partly a helpful corrective, isn't it? Uh, as long as we remember that it's sin that's the main problem with the world and with me, and as long as we remember that we can't have any share in these greater, wider plans of God unless our sins are dealt with, and sometimes people find it hard to remember that, then it's good to remember that God has a plan for the whole cosmos. It's good to remember that he's going to restore the whole of creation. It's good to remember that he's going to bring justice and fulfill promises and undo the terrible damage we've done to this world. But Hebrews 1 tells us to zoom out even further. It tells us that to belong to Jesus is to be a part of something even more wonderful than a restored world. It's to be part of a gift given by God to his son. It's to share in the love of the father for the son and conversely the son for the father. In Hebrews, of course, this makes everything uh, more serious and more wonderful. It makes it more serious because rejecting the gospel of God's son is a far greater dishonor to God than rejecting the law of Moses. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Uh, says Hebrews 2.3. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Hebrews 10.29. 
The stakes are much higher. But the hope is greater too. As we go into Hebrews 2, we discover that Jesus' inheritance somehow belongs to us too. He doesn't just redeem us from our sins, he brings us to glory and calls us his brothers and sisters. Uh, In Hebrews 10, we read that Jesus brings us closer to God than any ordinary priest or or any ordinary sacrifice ever could. And by Hebrews 12, we've gone from warning to celebration. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus being the son of God makes a difference to everything, to how we think about salvation, to how we think about ministry. And these are just the, this is just scratching the surface, isn't it? Uh, What I would like to do, I think, just in the, the last few minutes, is try and recap and maybe extend a few points that spell out the difference that the biblical and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity makes to us. I think I've got five points. The doctrine of the Trinity, one, shows us that it is possible for us to know God. First, because God is a person about whom things can be said because he exists in relationship from eternity. God is a relational being, therefore things can be said in relational terms and be true about him. God, who doesn't have love, for example, who exists in splendid isolation, uh, love is not really true of his person. It's true of our God. It's also possible to know God, of course, because he sent his son into our world to show us. Second, the Trinity shows us that love is the deepest reality. Before there was a world, there was God loving his son. The reason why we have a world is because the father loves his son. And the reason why we are saved is because the son loves his father and honours his command to save. Three, the Trinity reminds us that we are not the centre. Everything is about God and his son. Even our salvation is more fundamentally a means for the son to achieve his inheritance, which is incidentally, of course, is why not all are saved. Jesus is glorified by judgment as well as, as, well as salvation. Four, the Trinity should infinitely enlarge our sense of privilege. We're saved, after all, not by simply an animal being sacrificed for us or just an ordinary person, but a human being who happens to be God's own son. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 The price is infinite and the glory is infinite as well. We're not just rescued from death or restored as stewards of of God's creation or even just given a ticket to heaven. Uh, We are given a part of God's love for his own son. The most exalted uh, privilege that we could possibly imagine. And of course we can't really imagine it. We can only glimpse from afar. And we'll spend the rest of eternity knowing what it means. Finally, the Trinity directs us to the heart of Christian life and ministry. Here's Here's a quote from John Stott. Here lies the supreme missionary motivation. It's neither obedience to the Great Commission, nor compassion for the lost, nor excitement over the gospel, but but zeal, even jealousy, for the honour of Christ's name. 
No incentive is stronger than the longing that Christ should be given the honour that is due his name. It's a provocative statement, isn't it? I think Stott gets it right. Theology is deeper even than soteriology. When we preach the gospel, we aren't just doing it so that people might be saved, though that's certainly true. We are honouring God's Son and participating in the Father's plan for the universe and for his Son. And that purpose will be fulfilled whether people believe or not. Jesus will be exalted, either as saviour or judge, though we plead with God that it it be as saviour. But whatever happens, Jesus is at the centre. And whatever ministry we do happens in the light of his glory that shines forth from the Father. Gospel gospel ministry, therefore, is glorious. It unites us with God the the Father as he delights in his Son. Jesus replied in John 14, 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. And ministry joins us to Christ as he glorifies the Father. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples in John 15, 7 to 8. So we do ministry, we find ourselves not simply saved by the persons of the Trinity, but in their midst as they use us to show love to each other in this world. That's a mystery, I think, uh, that goes beyond anything that we can really understand. But let's thank God for it. Lord God, thank you for sending your beloved Son into the world. Thank you for the way your glory and goodness and kindness shone out from him. Thank you that he made atonement for our sins with his blood and that he now rules at your right hand. Thank you that because of the way you saved us, Jesus is our brother and you are our father. Please make our minds and hearts respond to these wonders. Please fill us with joy so that we can overflow with praise and encourage your people. Please use us to glorify your son and yourself by the power of your spirit. Amen.